Our scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. And I love the heading that is found in the translation that I'm reading from today. The heading says, Ten Commandments for the Covenant Community. And we'll come back to that during the sermon, so keep that in mind. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God before me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Honor your father and mother. Then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. When the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn, and when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance, trembling with fear. And they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak directly to us or we will die. Don't be afraid, Moses answered them, for God has come in this way to test you, and so that your fear of him will keep you from sinning. As the people stood in the distance, Moses approached the dark cloud where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we start our new sermon series, we're looking at binge reading the Bible, and I hope, I hope you've taken up the challenge, the 90-day Bible challenge, and uh, that you're reading along with us as we go through this sermon series. You know, the Bible is a remarkable book. It's absolutely amazing in so many different ways. It has been the number one bestseller for generations. Uh, it far outstrips any other book on the bestseller list, so much so that they've had to remove the Bible from the bestseller list so that other books can stand a chance. Uh, the Guinness Book of World Records estimates that more than 
five billion copies of the Bible have been printed. It's even more than that now because that stat is from 2015. Well, as of September 2020, the full Bible has been translated into 704 languages. The New Testament has been translated into an additional about 1,500 languages and portions of stories into another about 1,200 different languages. And so at least some portions of the Bible have been translated into about 3,400 different languages. That's remarkable. That outstrips any other book in the history of the world. Uh, it's actually not one book. And we realize that, I think, as we begin to read it. It's actually a, a collection of books that includes stories and poetry. It includes histories and prophecies and so much more. It's actually written by about 40 different human authors. And they wrote from a variety of different occupations, everything from farmer to king and everything in between. Uh, they wrote on three different continents in three primary languages. And they wrote over a span of about 1,500 years. And yet it all points in a uniform direction. It all points to a certain unity, which is quite amazing. And so I want you just to pause for a moment. And if you have the Bible in your hand or if you have a Bible on your phone, just consider for a moment what you're holding in your hand. This is a remarkable collection of ancient texts that you and I get to read today. Just like generations upon generations past who heard these words for the first time thousands of years ago, we get to pick it up very casually and read these ancient texts today. And I just find that very, very remarkable. That alone makes the Bible worth reading. But there's more. For the followers of Jesus and for others around the world, this is more than just a collection of well-preserved ancient texts. There's more to it than that. In fact, we as believers in Jesus Christ, we believe that the Bible is inspired by God. It's not just written by human hands. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, it says this, all scripture is God-breathed. It's not just written down by human hand, but it has the very essence of God in it the very breath of God within the scriptures. And that makes it very, very important. It also makes it very useful. That verse goes on in 2 Timothy 3 and 16 and into verse 17 to say that all scripture is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that's why we read it. Uh, we don't just read the Bible for information. We certainly, and try and resist this, we don't read the Bible for ammunition to lob against our enemies. We actually want to read the Bible for transformation. We want to be changed by these God-breathed words so that our lives are different, so that our lives are closer to the truth. That's why we read it. Well, my father-in-law, Dr. George Sears, he has written a book, and the book is coming out, hopefully this coming year. It's just being published right now, and it's called By What Authority? And I love what George does in the book. He uses a, an image of a plumb line as his foundational image. 
Now, if you're not sure what a plumb line is, a plumb line is a simple weight that's attached to the end of a string, and it relies on gravity to measure the accuracy of a vertical surface, like a wall or something like that, during construction. So you can imagine what a plumb line does. Well, George makes this important connection. I think it's really life-giving in his new book that's coming out. He says this, the plumb line is a tool. It determines the vertical. The Bible is a tool. It determines a way in which God, the creator, has determined to communicate with his creation. It is the tool which is to be held up against what is being written about the purpose of our lives, the history of the universe, the meaning of life, and the conclusion of all time. The Bible is that plumb line that helps us understand what is true and what is false, what is being said about the world that is true and what is being said about the world that is false. And so it's incredibly useful for us and incredibly important that we read it and get into it. So over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at the major sections of our Bibles. And I want to give you just a few pointers, a few tips, some direction in how to read it for all it's worth so that we can see the truth and so that we can be transformed by these God-breathed words. Well, where do we begin? A good place to begin is probably at the beginning. And so we're going to start right in the Old Testament, right in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, it's going to be impossible to cover all those in one sermon. So we're going to narrow that down and give a few pointers in just a few minutes. Now, the collection of books that we, as Christian Protestants, call the Old Testament is actually called the Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K-H, by our Jewish uh, friends. And the word is an acronym. And that acronym reflects the three main sections of the Hebrew scriptures. First of all, we have the Torah. That's the T in Tanakh. That's the law. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then we have the Nevi'im. That's the prophets. And then thirdly, we have the Ketuvim, and that's the writings. And the reason I point this out is because our Protestant translations have a slightly different arrangement. But the translation and the uh, uh, sections that I just described to you, those would be the sections familiar to Jesus. In fact, in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, he says this. He's talking to his disciples, and he says, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me, listen for it, in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. So that's the threefold sections that we have within the traditional Hebrew scriptures. Well, the order was changed over time, and as the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, were translated into Greek, then translated into Latin, and then translated into lots of other languages, including English. So our sections don't necessarily line up, but the books are still there and the writings are still there. But there's one section that we have in common, and that is the first five books of the Bible. These foundational books that our Hebrew friends call the Torah and that we sometimes call the Pentateuch. Now, don't say that outside. Someone might think that you've got a cold or something like that. It sounds like you're sneezing. The Pentateuch. It refers to the five books 
five books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Well, these contain the origin stories for us. That's why it's so important to read them. Whenever we read something first in the Bible, that sets the precedent for all the other times of understanding that particular topic. So it's important to get to these origin stories. We have origin stories around the creation of the world, around humanity, around family, around marriage. We have uh, origin stories around cities and civilization. But probably most importantly, in this Pentateuch, we have origin stories of the covenants. These are agreements that God makes with a particular individual or a group of people. And those covenants, they drive scripture all the way through. So it's important to pay attention. Well, in these first five books, we also have the dark side of the Pentateuch. And I love this. Not that I love the dark side, but I love the fact that the Bible doesn't gloss over our weaknesses or our failings. In fact, it, it highlights them to show us who we really are. And so we have the origins of murder, of racial divisions. We have the origins of warfare and national boundaries. Ultimately, we have the origins of sin that we find that rocks our world and shatters our lives. We find those origins right in this Pentateuch as well. So all of that is there. Well, in the midst of this, we have an overarching theme. And this theme is alluded to by the Hebrew word Torah, which means instructions or law. Because ultimately, even with all the creation stories and everything else, the overwhelming burden of the Pentateuch of these first five books is the law of God and how that law affects all of humanity, how that law reveals God's character and how we interact with that law. Well, as you read through, and I do hope you read through these first five books, uh, try and note all the different laws that you read, all the different commands. Now, someone has already done this for you, so you can Google it, but see how many you come up with. If you're accurate, you will come up with, wait for it, 613 commands. Now you're saying, wait a minute, I thought there were 10 commandments, and I can't even remember those. Well, there's actually 613 commands. And these laws cover all aspects of life at the time. There are civil laws. That covers the aspect of our life together within community. There are also ceremonial laws that covered how a person was supposed to approach God, especially during the ritual sacrifices at the time. And then there's also the moral law. And that's the part of the law that seems to have transcended time. And that's the part that we probably know the most about summed up in the Ten Commandments. And so these 613 commands uh, cover all aspects of life imaginable. Now some, and I have to warn you as you read through this, some of the commands are weird. They seem so strange to us because we're so far removed from the context, I think. For instance, Exodus chapter 22, we read this, that you can't kill a burglar during the daytime. At nighttime, he's fair game. <laughs> but you cannot kill a burglar during the daytime. And I think there's reasons for that, but it seems strange to our ears. Or in Leviticus chapter 19, it warns us to not plant different seeds within the same field. And that's another strict law that was kind of passed down 
to the people at the time. Or here's one of my all-time favorites in Exodus chapter 23. The instruction is this. Don't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. So some of these leave us scratching our head a little bit, I'll admit. And sometimes we've just either lost the context or we haven't thought about them. Sometimes when we explore the context, we go, ah, well, that makes sense. And so if you hear or see some of these strange laws, make a note of them and maybe ask me about them and we can explore those together. But there are some strange laws. But I want you also to hear that there are some beautiful laws within the Pentateuch. There are amazing laws of compassion that I think were far ahead of the time and really set the community of Israel apart from other nations. There were laws that had to do with the specific care of animals. You were not to muzzle an ox when it was treading the grain. In other words, don't stop your animal from eating when it's working. Uh, you were to rescue your animal if it fell into a pit, even if it was the Sabbath. There, there are laws for the compassionate care of animals. There's laws for the provision of the poor, like don't harvest your field right to the outer edges. Leave some for the poor to come so they can eat too. Uh, there is really strict laws around hospitality for the stranger. So even the foreigner or the stranger that comes in, they had protection under the law, which is really remarkable. And there were laws that would limit uh, the justice that, that would be served on those who had committed crimes. So if you've committed an offense, there was a legal system that you could follow through. There were even cities of refuge you could flee to to make sure that you got a fair trial, a fair case. This is remarkable stuff. We're talking thousands of years ago. And these laws were meant to govern a just and fair society that gave special attention to those who were most vulnerable, including the elderly, including the foreigner or the stranger, uh, the new immigrant who had come in, and including even animals. That's amazing to me. And that's the beauty that we find in the law. Well, what's the bottom line in this spelling out of these 613 commands and all the other words that are used in the Pentateuch? The bottom line is this. God was forming a people, a group of people who would be holy, who would be different, who would be unique, so that he could reveal his character to the world. Keep that in mind as you read through it. God was forming a people who would be holy in order to reveal his character to the world. That's a big purpose of the law. Well, that brings us to the probably the best known part of the law, and that's the part I read to you, the Ten Commandments. Let's just list them together as uh, we remind ourselves. I don't know if you've memorized them, but let's try it together here. I've written them down, so I'm cheating a little bit. But here's the Ten Commandments. Don't have other gods. Don't make idols. Don't use God's name carelessly. Remember the Sabbath. Here's my favorite. Honor your parents. That's a good one. Hope my kids are listening. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. And don't covet something that isn't yours. Now, for the most part, that makes perfect sense to me. And I hope it does to you as well. But here's three things I just want to point out about this summary of the moral law, this most common and probably best known part of the law of God that we find 
in the Old Testament. The first thing is this. There's a kind of natural division between the commandments. The first set, one through four, maybe even one through five, have to do with authority, have to do specifically with our relationship to God. That's really important to get. The second part, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't covet, that has to do with our relationship to our neighbors. So maybe you can see where I'm going with this. Because the summary of the law according to Jesus and according to the Old Testament is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's the two divisions of the Ten Commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. And that's really important because the two great sins that we find in the Bible are this. First is the sin of idolatry. That is not loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second great sin, the sin of inhospitality. That is not loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's found within the Ten Commandments. That's found in the summary of the law. That's the natural division. The second point I want to make is really important, though, and that is this, that these commands only really make sense in the context of a covenant. They don't make sense if you're just looking from the outside in. And sometimes they seem a little bit arbitrary, or they seem almost cruel or demanding. Some of these first commandments, don't have other gods, don't make idols, don't use God's name carelessly. Some people might wonder, well, is God really that insecure that he has to demand affection from people? But it's not like that at all. We have to understand the context of covenant in order to understand the context of the law. Covenant is an agreed-upon relationship between two parties. Where we see that today is most commonly within marriage. Almost 27 years ago, in fact, 27 years ago this year, I married Christine, my wonderful wife. And when we stood and we shared our marriage vows, we were also sharing some expectations of one another. And one of the expectations that I shared with her is that I would love her alone. And that forsaking all others, that I would be faithful only to her. Now, when I said that, I didn't have a bunch of people standing up in the audience saying, what? You're crazy. That's unfair. That's unrealistic. How could Christine demand that sort of thing? No, I think we understand that that's a very realistic expectation within a covenant of love. That's the expectation we have. Well, the same is true of the law. So when God says, you know, be devoted to me alone, or don't go chasing after other gods, or don't make a fool of me in public, or make sure you make time for me every week, that seems very reasonable within the context of a covenant of love. And that's very important as you read through all of the rules and the laws, understand that it's in the context of a loving covenant that's made by God. Okay, here's the third thing that I want to point out about the Ten Commandments. The third thing is this. They couldn't keep them. As logical as they sound, as simple as sometimes they sound, they couldn't even keep those ten, and neither can we. Not perfectly. In fact, Jesus, in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, he begins to make it even harder. He says, you haven't committed murder? Good for you. But every time you've hated your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. 
And we go, wait, what? That's even harder. And that's the point, that we can't keep the law fully. In fact, even as Moses came down after giving all the law to the people, he came back down from Mount Sinai, and this is in Exodus chapter 32, I think it is, and he sees the people unbelievably breaking the first two commandments. They've made a golden calf and they're worshiping other gods right from the get-go. And Moses just about loses his mind. He breaks the tablets and he calls down a condemnation on the people. And that's the pattern that actually unfolds all throughout the Old Testament. The making of laws and the breaking of laws. The reaffirmation of the laws and the breaking of the covenant. And it goes on like that, on like that, until the prophets start to provide a promise. And the promise is found in Jeremiah chapter 31 and many other places throughout the prophets. And it says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. There's a promise that emerged in the Old Testament before the time of Jesus that God was going to do something different. Instead of this external motivation to be holy, there would be an inner transformation to make us holy. That's the promise that came. And in fact, in Ezekiel 36, verse 26, it says this, And I will give you a new heart, transformation, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove this heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh. In other words, I know you can't abide by these rules, not completely, not perfectly, and so I'm going to transform you from the inside out. And ultimately, ultimately, this is fulfilled in Jesus and the giving of God's Holy Spirit recorded for us in the um, Acts of the Apostles. So that's the promise that develops because we cannot keep the law fully. So what's the point of the law? Is it just a burden that's on us? What do we do with it, even as we read through these scriptures again? Well, I think the Apostle Paul shows us a couple of things. He shows us that the law is actually good. It's a reflection of God's character. That it is pure. That it is useful, except it is limited. The law is limited. And he expresses it in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24 in this way. He says, Therefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. So we're not saved by keeping a set of rules. As good and as useful as they are for all kinds of things, they won't save us. But they will reveal our sin. They will reveal the, the ways that we fail God. And that's important for us to understand that. Because without that sense of failing, without that sense of sin, we would never seek a savior beyond ourselves. We would always think that we're capable of saving ourselves. So the law reminds us of our need of our savior. And when Jesus comes, he doesn't abolish the law. He doesn't get rid of it. He actually fulfills it. He completes it. He keeps it perfectly because we are not able to keep it perfectly. And so by his faithfulness, we are saved if we trust in him. So 
How do you read uh, the Pentateuch? How do you read these first five books as you get into it? Well, I would encourage you to let the high standard and the purity of the law point you toward the holiness of God and reflect on the holiness of God as you read through those books. Secondly, I would, I would encourage you to embrace that sense of conviction when the law reveals our own failings and sin. Don't be afraid of that. It's not about shame, but it is uh, realizing who we are in God's presence. And having that sense of conviction is important because a godly sorrow will lead us to repentance and lead us to salvation. And then that's the third thing. Just allow the law to be our teacher, our schoolmaster, our tutor to lead us to Christ. Allow the law to lead us to Christ. Well, the foundations of a civil society and our society, in fact, and of the Christian worldview are found in these first five books of the Tanakh, the Torah, the Pentateuch found in the Old Testament. I want to encourage you to read them with a sense of humility and openness. And I pray that they will reveal the truth about our world, about ourselves, and about our God as we read them together. Amen.